Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Grey Gardens. I think the saddest thing was my not marrying. During the war, my best friend, she was a nurse with the Red Cross. She met somebody overseas in a hospital. A Marine lost both of his legs at Iwo Jima. Romance was inevitable, really, given the situation. But I couldn't travel. Mother wasn't well during the war, you see. Gerald Gettys worshipped you. And those two nice Rockefeller fellas. Horrible, horrible. Oh, you just didn't want to get married. Now it's all blamed on me. I missed out on everything. Right throne. Point the famous finger. Life is disappointing. Put the parrot through the ringer. Soap, moan. Blame it on the mother. When I'm dead and buried, you won't get another. I'm an account in Greenwich Village. He was a poet and a playwright, and he said, Edith, I want to make an honest woman out of you. I thought that was very decent. He didn't have a nickel in his trousers, not a nickel. Mother despised him, gave him the pink slip to think I could have been a countess. But first, how are we doing? Hello, welcome to this, the latest episode of The Musical Man. I hope you are doing well. This week, for the opening segment, I want to talk about Grumpy Old Men, the musical. That's right. There's a musical adaptation of Grumpy Old Men that just premiered on the West Coast, the West Coast premiere of Grumpy Old Men. It stars Kathy Rigby, also known as Peter Pan, and Ken Page of Ain't Misbehavin', and it looks absolutely atrocious. But it did inspire Chris and I to compile a list of other middling films, most of them comedies, that will probably be turned into stage musicals at some point in the future. Stage musicals that are destined to waste the time of audiences in L.A., Seattle, D.C., any major city that is in New York City, essentially. That list is as follows. You've Got Mail, Adventures in Babysitting, The Out-of-Towners, Cheaper by the Dozen, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Three Men and a Baby, Clerks, My Cousin Vinny, City Slickers, That Thing You Do, King Ralph, Blast from the Past, In and Out, A Fish Called Wanda, A Knight's Tale, A Kid in King Arthur's Court, Green Card, Liar Liar, The Majestic, Miss Congeniality, The Parent Trap. Now, we wrote The Parent Trap down, and then later in the week, this very self-same week, it was announced that a... A Parent Trap, it's essentially The Parent Trap, the musical, but it's based on the book that inspired The Parent Trap. That book was actually known as Identical, so the musical is going to be called Identical. I made this joke on Twitter, but it sounds like the title of a Christopher Nolan film, Identical. You look just like me. We gotta get our parents back together. So, moving through this list, uh, we have Uncle Buck, Remember the Titans, Empire Records, Mr. Holland's Opus, Isn't She Great, and Joe vs. the Volcano. Now, during this compilation, this work that we put into making this list, we happen upon three movies that I believe should go to Broadway. First of all, The Princess Diaries. How? 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 How do we not already have that? My Big Fat Greek Wedding, the musical? How? 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 How do we not have that? How? And finally, this is admittedly just coming from my own well of nostalgia. I think this would be a delight on stage. Cats Don't Dance. You remember Cats Don't Dance? The animated film? It's a 
delight. That is a musical in and of itself. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna ask how, 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 how have we not gotten that? How? I'm not gonna ask that question because it's Cats Don't Dance. It didn't make any money, so I'm not surprised that we haven't seen it. But you know, sometimes you have to remake the flops. That's what Michael Caine said in his book, or at least that's what Chris said. Michael Caine said in his book, and I asked our listeners, our followers on Twitter, to provide a few more ideas for middling comedies, 80s, 90s films that barely anyone remembers that could be turned into bad L.A. Seattle world premiere musicals. And we got a fair amount of responses, a great deal of responses, I should say. Thank you so much for engaging with this question, this very Ridiculous question. From Jenna, we have Can't Buy Me Love and Never Been Kissed. From Angela, Now and Then. From Thomas, Baby Boom and Big Business. From Zach, Billy Madison, Big Daddy, Little Nicky, and Fifty First Dates. I will say this, out of Zach's batch of suggestions, I think Fifty First Dates is inevitable. From Twitter user at Cosbrarian, you've got mail from Tobias, Heart and Souls, Father of the Bride, Liar Liar, a oh, bit of overlap there, and She's All That. Heart and Souls is a movie I had never heard of until Tobias brought it up on Twitter. It is a Robert Downey Jr. vehicle and a Charles Grodin vehicle. <laughs> How many times can you say that? That they shared the screen together. And it's about Robert Downey Jr.'s character being haunted by four ghosts who have unfinished business. And it looks delightful. I've got a Rent it through the library as soon as I can. From Twitter user Blake Backlash, we have Short Circuit, which would be insane. <laughs> From Steve and Russell, Simply Irresistible. From Brandon, hello Brandon, the Page Master, and To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which is our most recent film on this list, but I can absolutely see I can honestly see that going off Broadway or Broadway. I would I can definitely see that being of real value. That is not on the same level as a old men. From Ashley, we have Big Girls Don't Cry, They Get Even, Little Monsters, Empire Records, uh, Overlap, A League of Their Own, Hocus Pocus, Sky High, and Keeping Up with the Steins. And then from Patrick, we have a horror batch, Scream, I Know What You Did Last Summer, Urban Legend, The Craft, Child's Play, The Blair Witch Project, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Gremlins, and It. I have a couple of observations uh, regarding this batch. The craft would work really, really well, and I think it would be really crazy, and I would love to see that, and I especially want to see Frank Wildhorn's South Korean language version of it. As we remember, Wildhorn has already written a Death Note musical. He wrote the music for it, at least, so I would love to get a taste, just a workshop, maybe, of his version of it. That would be B-O-N- K-E-R dollar sign. Bunkers! <laughs> so thank you again for submitting all of those suggestions, fair listeners, my musical minions. Yes, you dance to the tune of my piper, is what you do. Let's get the show facts for this week's subject, Grey Gardens. Show me the show facts. Grey Gardens was a 2007 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on November 2nd, 2006 at the Walter Care Theater and ran for 307 performances. The book is by Doug Wright and it is based on the 1975 documentary, which was directed by David and Albert Mazels, Ellen Hovde, and Muffy Mayer. The doc has subsequently been marked for preservation by the National Film Registry and adapted into a 2009 HBO film, which starred Drew Barrymore and Jessica Lang. The music for Grey Gardens was written by Scott Frankel, and the lyrics were by Michael Corey. The director was Michael Griff. 
The musical director was Lawrence Yerman. The choreographer was, oh, I'm sorry, no official choreography credit. Again, we must make this distinction. Instead, we have musical staging by Jeff Calhoun. Scenic design, Alan Moyer. Lighting design, Peter, oh, and I do apologize in advance, Peter, Kozrowski. Let's just go with that. <laughs> I do apologize again. Sound design, Brian Ronan. And costume design, William Ivy Long. Fair question. Where are the women on the production side of this show about two iconic women? Let's think about that for five seconds. Hi again. You think about it? All right. The original Broadway cast included Christine Ebersole, otherwise known as White Diamond in Steven Universe, or Janet Cruz, the mom, in the film Mac and Me. <laughs> the cast also included Mary Louise Wilson, otherwise known as Aunt Martha from Nebraska, Matt Cavanaugh. His voice seemed familiar to me, and it turns out he played Superman in the Dallas Theater Center production of It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, which our snub club patrons know all about. What a small world. And to round out out this cast, we have Aaron Davey, Kelsey Fowler, and Sarah Hyland, all of them making their Broadway debut with Grey Gardens. We have John McMartin, Michael Potts, and Bob Stillman. In terms of Tony Awards, Grey Gardens won Best Actress in a Musical, Christine Ebersole, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Mary Louise Wilson, and Best Costume Design, William Ivy Long. The show was also nominated for Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Doug Wright, Best Original Score, Scott Frankel and Michael Corey, Best Direction of a Musical, Michael Griff. Best Orchestrations, Bruce Coughlin. Best Scenic Design of a Musical, Alan Moyer. And Best Lighting Design of a Musical, Peter. And I do apologize again, Peter Kazrowski. So, ten nominations in total, three awards at the end of the day. Before we get into the plot of the musical, which is largely fictionalized, I want to provide some context regarding the 1975 documentary, which was initially the brainchild of Lee Radziwill. In the early 70s, Lee was officially known as Her Serene Highness Princess Caroline Radziwill, having married a Polish prince in the late 1950s. But she was keenly interested in producing a film about her family of origin, the Bouviers. Her younger sister, Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy, had been a national figure for some time, but Lee was interested in the bigger picture. In 1972, she approached filmmakers David and Albert Maisels, Ellen Hovde, and Muffy Meyer about bringing her idea to life, agreeing to provide full funding for the documentary's production. During their travels together, Lee took the filmmakers to Grey Gardens, a crumbling mansion located at 3 West End Road in the Georgica Pond neighborhood of East East Hampton, New York. There they were met by Lee's aunt, Edith Ewing Bouvier Beale, who went by the nickname Big Edie, and Lee's cousin, Edith Bouvier Beale, who went by Little Edie. The filmmakers were instantly captivated by this eccentric mother-daughter pair who had been living in squalor at Grey Gardens for years. Details from a series of inspections by the Suffolk County Health Department had recently been published by the National Enquirer and New York Magazine. Said details included a clowder of feral cats mingling freely amongst fleas and raccoons, piles of rotting garbage, and a complete lack of indoor plumbing. In the summer of 1972, with their aunt and cousin facing eviction, Lee and Jackie provided the necessary funds to bring the house up to code, even though it was clear Big and Little Edie had little interest in pleasing or meeting the standards of the outside world. The filmmakers quickly decided that the story worth telling within the Bouvier family was that of Big and Little Edie. When this idea was presented to Lee, 
Lee, she swiftly confiscated all of their footage and withdrew her funding. Undeterred, the filmmakers secured their own budget and completed the film, which premiered to wide acclaim at the 1975 New York Film Festival before a general release in February 1976. Little Edie reportedly attended the 75 premiere in a red dress, which she wore backwards so that the zipper would show in front. Was it a conscious decision? Well, from what I've learned about Little Edie, you never really can tell. After her mother died in 1977, Little Edie attempted to ignite a career as a cabaret singer at the age of 60. She booked an eight-performance run at a Manhattan nightclub known as Reno Sweeney, and the subsequent reviews, all of which were negative, were successfully kept from her. The New York Times was especially harsh, describing the act as, quote, a public display of ineptitude. Little Edie then went on to sell Grey Gardens in 19. 1979 for a cool $220,000, handing the keys over to Sally Quinn and Ben Bradley of the Washington Post. Little Edie's Wikipedia page then jumps to 1997, at which time she moved to Bell Harbor, Florida. She was found dead five years later, and the inscription on her grave reads as follows, quote, I came from God, I belong to God. In the end, I shall return to God. All right, now that we have a proper historical foundation in place, we can talk about the plot of Great Gardens, the musical. The first act, which is set in the early 1940s, is highly speculative. In other words, it's almost entirely made up. Big Edie, who is 47 in this act and played by Christine Ebersole, is in the final stages of planning Little Edie's engagement party. Little Edie, who is 24 and played by Aaron Davey, is positively desperate to move out of her parents' house and start a new life with her fiancé, Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Side note, in reality, Little Edie did insist she was once engaged to Joe Kennedy, though they had only spoken once. Classic Little Edie. Okay, back to the musical. The engagement party is meant to celebrate the start of Little Edie's new life, one lived beyond the outline of her mother's shadow. But Big Edie, who is an aspiring singer, turns the event into yet another opportunity to perform in front of their friends and family. The younger members of the Bouvier clan, including Little Jacqueline and Lee, are over the moon for Big Edie's performances, while others, including staunchly conservative patriarch J.V. Major Bouvier, are embarrassed by her vulgar theatrics. Throughout this entire evening, everyone has been confused as to when Big Edie's husband, Phelan Beale, will arrive. He was scheduled to roll into town on the 515 train, but a telegram provides the grim truth. Phelan is actually in Mexico, having run off with another woman, and will soon initiate divorce proceedings. Big Edie is dumbstruck. Joe Kennedy, having learned about Little Edie's less-than-virtuous background, I'm not sure how he learns about it, but learn about it he does, abandoned her to fight in World War II and earn the kind of glory that will net him a seat in the Senate. Instead, he dies while serving as a bomber pilot. That's what you get, Joe. Act 2 jumps to the 1970s, the era depicted in the documentary. Things are not looking good. Big Edie, now 79 and played by Mary Louise Wilson, has turned equal parts angry and woefully nostalgic. And Little Edie, now 56 and played by Christine Ebersole, can't help but obsess over what her life might have looked like had she chosen to leave Grey Gardens. Surrounded by cats, dusty mementos from a more promising past, and a corn-loving teenage handyman named Jerry, who she absolutely cannot stand, Little Edie vows to make a break for it, only to reappear by her mother's side once more as the curtain comes down. 
The show is generally light on incident, especially in the second act, which borders on being impressionistic. But that's what I enjoy about it. By the mid-2000s, audiences were being bombarded by the sort of freak show reality programming that has since become even more exploitative and mean-spirited, hoarders being the best example. We've been told it's perfectly okay to gawk at the lives of crazy people, quote-unquote, as long as someone is shown to be helping them get back on their feet. The Grey Gardens documentary, for all of its virtues, kicked off this rubbernecking trend, but the key difference is that the filmmakers never commented on the lives of Big and Little Edie. They also never tried to clean up the mansion, give them makeovers, or introduce them to healthier diets. They simply let their subjects speak for themselves, a goal the documentary sort of shares with the musical. The musical doesn't raise an eyebrow in the face of the Bouvier's antics. It isn't interested in parody or cheap laughs, but it's not staunchly objective either. Instead, it uses its speculative what-if scenarios to address broader issues and themes. My big takeaway? The world is not designed to serve the interests of women. It hasn't. It isn't. Even women who are seemingly protected by wealth and a legacy can fall prey to the whims of men, overbearing, commandeering fathers who groom little girls to be codependent, flighty husbands who clutch purse strings before escaping to greener pastures. Big and Little Edie, as depicted in Grey Gardens the musical, know these men and are left to sift through their wreckage. And despite the resentments they feel toward each other, despite vicious comments leveled and threats articulated on a daily basis, they choose to honor the basic connection that binds them together, because God knows no one else will. Men leave so they can live. Women live while recovering, surviving. That's my big takeaway. Now, for the purposes of this week's episode, I was interested in tracking down and listening to the 2006 original Off-Broadway cast album, but it is not available through iTunes, which I found to be surprising, and it is also not available via Spotify, which I found to be downright strange. Exactly one copy is available via Amazon, but it'll cost you a cool $32.84. My professional conclusion? It's out of print, so forget about it. I did listen to of course, the 2007 original Broadway cast album, and I watched the 2007 Tony Awards performance of The Revolutionary Costume for today. I wanted to watch the 50-minute independent-lens documentary Grey Gardens from East Hampton to Broadway, but it is also not available. Someone is trying to prevent me from learning more about this show, and I resent it mightily. Let's talk about the score. In a statement released today, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis confirmed that her 80-year-old aunt, Mrs. Edith Bouvier Beale, and her adult daughter, Edie, are living in squalid conditions in an East Hampton estate known as Gray Gardens. The house that once played host to Howard Hughes and the Rockefellers is now a refuge for 52 stray cats, a few rabbit raccoons, and its two reclusive inhabitants, all living in an environment the health department calls unfit for human habitation. Mrs. Onassis described the situation as a private family matter. And so we're left to ponder, how could American royalty fall so far so fast? I found it, mother darling. I found your old record. She's the girl who has everything. Everything. She has the world on the street. On a string. Isn't it wonderful? God, aren't you just mad about your song? 
I recorded it in 1941. I was very serious about my singing. Loved it. sang the song for me. I was the girl who had everything. Well, that's ancient history. Yeah. Everything minus the ring. I don't think people should get married. I don't believe in it at all. Well, if you can't get a man to propose to you, you might as well be dead. I get a healthy kick out of the prologue, the girl who has everything, which establishes Big and Little Edie's situation in a couple of ways. First, there's the ethereal opening theme, which sounds as if it's from an old episode of The Shadow, but then the sonorous voice of the broadcaster, professional yet eerie, calls to mind Rod Steiger's introductions from The Twilight Zone. That recitation from the broadcaster ends with the following line, And so we're left to ponder, how could American royalty fall so far so fast? This, I believe, is the show giving us free reign when it comes to interpreting the lives of these women. Make of it what you will, we have our theories, you will have yours. Quite a clever invitation, if you ask me. And then finally, we get a brief but excellent exchange between mother and daughter. Big Edie sings along with her younger self, basking in the rosy glow of days gone by, while little Edie can't help but roll her eyes and to nurse old wounds. Their dialogue establishes everything we need to know about them. It's so well written. Doug Wright, I see you. This is good writing. There were a few instances throughout Grey Gardens where I picked up on distinct Sondheim vibes, but the score never feels like an imitation, it should be said. The Girl Who Has Everything made me think of The Follies opening, which itself begins in a crumbling present before traveling to a glorious past. Big Edie sings of a girl who has everything but time. Beauty, wealth, comfort, it's all destined to fade away, and we can't afford to ignore that fact. The delivery is as bright as that of a nightingale, but the warning is all too grim. Girls, girls, look at you, Jackie, lovely, and Lee, a fright. What have you been doing? Sing for us, Auntie Dick. Now, girls, make yourselves useful. Go out to the garden, make some pretty little nosegays to wear at the party. Please, please, just one song. <laughs> all right, cool. What's next on the bill? Indian love call? No, the mysterious Orient. Hit it! Pretty itty bit, geisha. Delicate and small and sweet. Kneeling on tatami, making origami. Hobbling on her poor bound feet. Ooh! Pretty itty bit, geisha. Hiding on her foolish pride. Let your auntie Edith finish her rehearsal. Take your silly selves outside. <laughs> Utter terrors, those two. Yeah, I just adore children, especially grown ones. Ma'am, the caterers arrived. Where would you like them to set up? Put the chafing dishes on the garden ledge. Once the gardener has finished with a hedge, chill the vicious swaths and heat the veal and wish me luck, cause Mr. Veal is arriving on the 515. Where were we? Stake the droopy hydrangeas. Two o'clock. Fill the lotus pond. Three o'clock. Lock the cat up in its room. Four kitty. Four o'clock. Glaze the salmon in aspic. Five o'clock. Crack the crab on ice with the privet pruned and manicured. And my daughter's future well assured. Gray goddess will be decked out in its fry. Of 1941. Of East, West, South, and Bridge have done. Oh, perhaps I've overspent 
to beat the man who's gonna pay for it is arriving, arriving on the song puts me in a bubbly pink champagne mood, I must say, I do say. The 515 shows Big Edie in her element, juggling a rehearsal with her accompanist while overseeing her daughter's engagement party with the unquestioned confidence of an orchestra conductor. This is a sumptuous, refreshing slice of musical theater cake. Michael Corey's lyrics are especially good, drawing out the kind of glittering details you would expect to find in the life of the rich. The line that sticks out to me is Big E.D. singing, Glaze the Salmon in Aspic. It's so granular, so niche. Again, it makes me think of Sondheim, specifically the luxury of a little night music, but I never think to draw any real qualitative comparisons. The Grey Garden score stands on its own. I also want to point out Big E.D.'s predilection for racist novelty songs. On this track, she sings a portion of The Mysterious Orient, which I assume is a song that has been written by her gay accompanist, George Gould Strong, who may or may not have been gay in reality, depending on who is speaking for him. But yes, The Mysterious Orient, wow! It's pure 1940s nonsense, and I can absolutely see Big Edie's friends and family eating it up. Little Jackie and Liz certainly do, backing up their aunt with a chorus of Siamese catcalls. Is it funny Absolutely, and I believe we're meant to be laughing at these clueless, privileged people living in their rosy bubble. But I don't think the laughs are cheap. I can picture a version of this show where a character like Big Edie is nothing more than an egotistical monster, a caricature who can only be ridiculed and easily dismissed. But the interpretation of Big Edie that we get is more complicated, and her weirder, cringeworthy decisions make me wonder where she's coming from. I ponder is what I do, and and pondering is fun for me. Art should make you ponder. Big Edie is a product, not only of her time, but obviously of her family and their hive-like mindset. She operates under the assumption that everything will work out in her favor, and why shouldn't she? It has for a very, very long time. And when her bubble does pop, and she is left with only her daughter to comfort her, the question becomes, are we able to relate to this weird, sad woman? Can and should we empathize with her? I can, which is is surprising to me. Big E.D. is the kind of person who would probably wear a MAGA hat while sticking up for a great-grandchild's interracial relationship. She's all over the goddamn place, but I get how she's gotten to that point. Her dream of becoming a successful singer says it all. She wants to break out. She wants to be known for skills she cultivated. They weren't handed down to her via legacy, but she's inevitably hamstrung by the pressures and fucked-up standards of the era. Women can't win. They get fucked over. So, if Big E.D wants to sing a bizarrely racist song about the Orient, I can find it in my heart to forgive her foolishness. She's got a lot on her plate, and I'm not surprised by her inability to see the forest for the trees. But we get I'm not condoning racist novelty songs, right? Then I'm not giving them some generalized pass. Okay, good. Next song! Madam Butterfly, Tosca's aria. It's my best. Let it rest. I'll just die if people laugh. Laugh? Decorum, mother. That's all I ask. Fine. The best singers, the real professionals, all do it to save the state. When she doesn't get exactly what she wants, she positively spits mad up and tells the entire house. You'll say anything you need to say. Ladies, Ooh, mother, please. Let me get one word in. 
I'm surprised by both of you today. Both of you and this, way. this bossy, Out of line. Bratty, bratty, bordering on catty, most unladylike melee. You would think the program was resolved. So a great Turkish rhapsody. Rhapsody. Then it's bored by Baccarat. This is out of control, Turkish. Don't get me involved here. Mother Darling underscores what we already know, true, but I'm amused by the reminders nonetheless. Not only does Big Edie sing at every family function, from Christmases to christenings, but her act is positively overflowing with songs about people of color. Little Edie makes a reference to her mother's Apache number, which I can quite easily imagine is beyond atrocious, but Big Edie cannot be swayed. Her idea of a compromise in the face of her daughter's protestations, choosing to sing eight songs instead of nine. My favorite part of Mother Darling is when this entire conversation devolves into a noxious cloud of incomprehensible ranting, with Big and Little Edie barfing up a ceaseless torrent of petty and not-so-petty complaints. It's a contest of wills that exhausts anyone who finds themselves a witness to it, but Little Edie is destined to lose. They don't call her Big Edie for nothing. Forgive me, ladies, but we live in perilous times. If you want to anchor yourself in an uncertain world, you've only one recourse. With your eye on the ball and your feet on the fairway, hit it high, little girls, marry well. Every point under par is a leg up the stairway to the sky, little girls, marry well. J.V. Major Bouvier is a man who loves to hold court. He relishes the spotlight and uses it to make himself appear indispensable, as the solo Mary Well demonstrates. It's his Sermon on the Mount, a proclamation driven by the need to mold the next generation of female minds. But he's also selling a bill of goods. Go back to that track's opening line. If you want to anchor yourself in an uncertain world, you've only one recourse, Mary Well. This says everything about how women like Big and Little Edie are trained to think. Women are quivering reeds who would be obliterated if not for the protective walls built by men. But as we come to find, men like Bouvier and Joe Kennedy and Big Edie's husband, Phelan, are full of shit. They have no intention of putting in the time and effort it takes to sustain a relationship with the women in their lives. It's all about ego for them, legacy, and heaping helpings of recognition. It's no wonder the major loads Big Edie's singing so much. Any time she spends in the spotlight singing, is time that could be spent addressing his brilliance. Mary Well might have a bouncy marching beat to keep it moving, but its rhetoric is inherently poisonous. You're a Robert De Niro bad grandpa, Major. Now, remember, you're an old-time mammy. Poor as dirt, true, but rich in the wisdom of the ages. Down in Carolina, be old black diner, sweating and a-toiling at the boiling. Turnin' and a-scrapin', the steam escapin', cookin' up a breakfast that hits the spot. Cause all God's children love harmony, harmony, all God's children love harmony. Grits, fields to satiation, the whole plantation, them's the bestest fiddles, us colored folks give. What the hell is she singing? One of her freedom songs, sir. 
Piggy, stop. Jesus Christ. I mean, again, your confidence is admirable. And I'm honestly all about you scratching the itch to perform, even if it does distract from, you know, your daughter's shaky wedding plans. But this act of yours, it simply will not do, mother darling. What continues to crack me up is how certain members of her audience are horrified by hominy grits, but dummies like Joe Kennedy are fans from the outset. And the people who are horrified aren't even horrified for the right reasons. They just think it isn't right for Big Edie to be making a spectacle of herself. Everyone at this party is fundamentally nuts. God, now I'm imagining how many people in 2019 would storm the gates to defend the performance of a song like Hominy Grits. Oh, let her sing the song about the grits. You snowflake SJW libcucks. Oh, we let Whitney Houston cover that Dolly Parton song that one time. Now it's our turn. Flip it. My point is that white people have been and will continue to be incredibly, aggressively, willfully stupid for generations to come. We shouldn't accept it, but we shouldn't be surprised by it either. White people are wearisome. I say this as a white person. Oh my goodness, Gould. Is this on the bill? It's one of my favorites. Edie, please. It's the very first song you ever taught me. We used to sing it together. Given our amazing similarities, we could be a plate of eggs and ham, a pair of canaries. I shadow you like Mary's lamb. I'm sorry, I'm in no mood. Oh, for me, Mother, please. I'll sing the man's part. Physically, a few discreet disparities. attempt at making peace with her mother involves a duet like Peas in a Pod speaks volumes about their dysfunctional relationship. It's quite clearly a song for lovers. It's a love song. Little Edie even says, here, mother darling, I'll take the man's part right before delivering the lyrics. Physically, a few discreet disparities ought to keep us happy as a clam. Ew. Little Edie. Ew. But neither of them seem to pick up on why this is so inappropriate, and I think that's why I like following them around so much. Nothing truly registers for them until the end of the first act, and I find that oddly endearing. Maybe I'm admitting that I'd like to be a little less self-aware? I don't want to sing love songs with my mother or songs about hominy grits. I just want to be less self-aware and more blissed out is all. Not ignorant, blissed out a wee bit more. It would do me good. I know that. After I'm gone, when the ocean's haze blankets the grounds in gray, drift away on the tide, drift away. When you're alone and the twilight's glow shimmers across the day, drift away. Midnight duets Our breakfast tea and toast Funny how things that mean the least are What we miss the most 
necessarily think my read on this is accurate, but I like to think Drift Away involves Gould placing a gay curse on those who reside at Grey Gardens. He's on his way out while accurately predicting Big Edie's future, that there will come a time when she reflects on every little moment they shared, realize how precious those memories are, and feel a desire to drift off once there's nothing on the calendar worth celebrating. And he's encouraging her to follow that instinct. Goodbye, Big Edie. Your homosexual piano-playing poodle is moving on to grander, brighter shores. Have fun wallowing amongst used cat food tins. Ta-ta! I'm officially putting a gay curse on you. I know that's not actually what's going on here. Let a gay man have his fantasies. I just wish I could put gay curses on people. Like a photo in a sterling silver frame What I wouldn't give to keep things just the same My darling daughter Gould and me Performing songs for company Our little family safe the observations regarding the reprise of the 515, I assure you, only popping in to say I really enjoy that shift. Within the line, our little family, safe, serene. That quiet pause between safe and serene really gets to me. Christine Ebersole more than deserved her Tony win for her dual role as 1940s Big Edie and 1970s Little Edie. Her razzle-dazzle showmanship is undeniable, but the smaller moments, those are what convinced me to stick with her. Isn't it great when you can hang your hat on a pause? It makes the entire reprise worthwhile. Mother has a yen for the spotlight. Daddy disapproves of the stage. Never get your name in the papers, except for the nuptial page. Modulate your voice to a whisper. Always hide your sexual side. That's enough. Ask for getting drunk in that frat house. What? Father O'Hanlon lied. I'm my daddy's girl. What frat house? Virginal as a saint. That's my daddy's girl. Father O'Hanlon. Before he gets married, there are certain things that a guy's gotta know. I'm a good girl. I'm a sporty girl. I'm my daddy's girl. Used to his stony glares. And I know deep down he's just
I am into Daddy's Girl. It is the best song in Act 1 by far. Here we see little Edie edge ever closer to the brink, selling her mother and herself out in the hopes that the men in her life will come to accept her. You want me to say I'm nothing like my mother? You want me to say I'm virginal? Want me to keep my mouth shut? Want me to kill my dreams? I'll do it all! These are large, ragged pills that are difficult to swallow, and it fills little Edie with rage to know she's trying to swallow them at all. But from her perspective, she is running out of options. If she is going to live to see a brighter day, it's because the men in her life will have cleared a path for her. This song vibrates with anxiety and fear, which is why I dig it so much. It's a visceral approximation of a panic attack. Daughter, darling. Daddy's little angel, stop. All my love and wishes for success on this joyous stop. Thrilling, permanent, God-willing merge of beauty and noblesse. Look like a lawyer. That regretfully I can't be with you. What? You must soldier on as if I were. My felicities, stop. To the Kennedys, stop. Tell my wife to demur from theatrics with that poofter. Stop. Trust your father. Learn to honor and obey. If the truth be known and keep it all true, at present I'm in Mexico with Linda. Linda who? The moment my divorce from Mrs. Beale is granted, come for drinks, we'll be enchanted. Don't you just want to murder little Edie's father as she reads this telegram aloud? I want to kill him. Best of luck with the wedding, my daughter, and be sure to honor and obey your husband. I certainly hope your mother doesn't have, you know, a big reaction to my revealing that I'm in Mexico with another woman and that I want a divorce. You know how her feelings get so out of control, don't you? Thank God you're not like her! You're daddy's girl, right? A good daughter would shut the fuck up and not bother me with her complaints anyway. Linda and I think of you every chance we get in the morning when we have breakfast on our terrace. Many different herrings. You fight City Hall with a Persian shawl that used to hang on the bedroom wall Pinned under the chin, adorned with a pin, and pulled into a twist We invent the OJ Truve, make a poncho from a duvet Then you can be with Cousin Lee on Mr. Blackwell's list The full-length velvet glove hides the fist And that's the revolutionary costume for today Subvert the criss-crack boaters, those Dixon Agnew boaters. Armies of conformity are headed right your way. To make a statement you need not be in Boston Harbor up NDT. And that's a revolution to me. Starch! There's nothing worse, I tell you. Starch! S-T-A-U-N-C-H. Staunch women, we just don't weaken. Our little known fact of the fascist pact who comes here for antiquing. Da 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 da. Honestly, they can get you in East Hampton for wearing red shoes on a Thursday and all that sort of thing. I don't know whether you know that. 
I mean, do you know that? They can get you for almost anything. It's a mean, nasty Republican town. I don't like the revolutionary costume for today. Wait, wait, wait. Just let me finish my sentence. I don't like the revolutionary costume for today as much as, eh, see, you should have waited, as much as Little Edie's other second act showstopper, The House We Live In, but it's still a hell of a lot of fun. It also does a lot of heavy lifting without breaking a sweat, showing how splintered Little Edie has become since the 1940s. On the one hand, she's thumbing her nose at the bureaucrats, the health inspectors, the elite country club drones who would raise Grey Gardens and put her and Big Edie out on the street. She's rejected high fashion for DIY sound of music craftware, manufacturing entire outfits out of drapes and duvet covers. On the other hand, she can't help but point out how it was she who got a jump on the pillbox hat, not her cousin, First Lady Jackie Kennedy. So it's clear that on some level she's still pining for a taste of delicious validation. These competing instincts have left her paranoid, to a point where she believes eyes are peeking at her from every hiding place imaginable. Ebersole is in top form here, and it's no wonder she was given the stage when the Tony's broadcast came around. Like most memorable Tony's performances, it comes down to her stillness. When you plant yourself and have total control over the slightest, the smallest movements, every gesture becomes instantly fascinating and memorable to your audience. They will literally follow your every move. Ebersole appears through a magnifying glass during this number. It's the most basic of onstage effects, but the visual twisting of Little Edie's face neatly drives an important point home that something fundamental has changed. Is changing about Little Edie that makes her a somewhat unreliable narrator. Stillness, limited conscious effect, these will make your show a hell of a lot more memorable than gargantuan set pieces, I assure you. The musty smell of feline fur The dusty marks where pictures were songs and a reprise of Peas in a Pod were cut during Grey Garden's transition from off-Broadway to Broadway, which seems pretty standard. You have to cut off the fat so that your show can be lean and mean. And for the most part, the final product is both lean and mean. It's fleet-footed, self-assured, and I never got tired of wading through Big and Little Edie's emotional waters. The only number that feels unnecessary is the number you just heard, Entering Grey Gardens, which takes the mic from the women and gives it to the cats. 
That sounds like an off-Broadway idea, right? Something that would get tossed out after a no-idea-is-a-bad-idea brainstorm session? Picture it. We go ground level and take in Grey Gardens from a cat's point of view. It'll be weird and funky. We can have the actors meowing. The execution isn't terrible, but it is a tad ponderous. We already have an entire show about cats. It's called Cats! I don't necessarily think we need more cats on Broadway. It's a nice attempt, though. It's a big house, the house we live in, big hit this. It's a big job guarding freedom's doors, World War II. It's a big foe across the ocean, that means Hitler. But a big gal lights our golden shores. And with the big heart here on the home front, just exhausting every little guy pigeon. Here comes the good part. is the number that won Christine Ebersole the Tony. With The House We Live In, she makes Little Edie an iconic stage character that any self-respecting performer would want to portray. You know what I love the most about this version of Little Edie? The asides. The context she is constantly providing lest we fall behind. It's so funny to me. When she whispers World War II, man alive, that is great. Very, very funny. And this is the one number where Little Edie is allowed to have fun, no strings attached. She's free, unrestrained, glorious, yes, please, to it all. Jerry likes the way I do my corn. Isn't he a treasure? More corn? Look at how he chows right through my corn. It's my only pleasure. I boil it on the hot plate till all the juice is gone. Bless his soul, he knows which side my corn is buttered on. Jerry lacks a mother's tender care. Nobody to need him. Mothers now are barely ever there. Someone's got to feed him the kind of things that I like. His high school friends all scorn. Cottage cheese. Dr. Norman, Vincent Peale, but Jerry likes my corn. The things you do for me, Jerry, you're my Gibraltar. Corn is out of this world. Oh, did I do it nicely? He always compliments me on the way I do my corn. Mary Louise Wilson is also so damn good as Big Edie in this second act. You know what else is so damn good? This song, the song that she sings, Jerry Likes My Corn. It's so damn good. The arguing that interrupts Big Edie's doe-eyed whimsy, that I could take or leave. But the whimsy itself, yummy like a pizza pie it is to me. It's hilarious how Big Edie keeps going back to her main point as if we may have forgotten it. Oh, the corn? Yes, the corn. You know he likes my corn. 
There's a sweetness and a sadness here for me. It made me think of how when you get to a certain age, your faculties diminish, sure, and your world inevitably narrows. You start to wonder, what do I have to offer at this point? I only want to be of some value. I want to confirm that I can do something right. That Big Edie can whip up a single dish and have it be enjoyed means the world to her. Sure, she may also be using Jerry as a way of withholding affection from her daughter, but Big Edie is a batty old lady. What are you going to do? Around the world is what I call my world of special things. Around the world with rose bouquets I dried and tied on strings. A silver mask from a masquerade around and round I tweet. You tack them up so you My mother's friends, and with Jerry coming, it never ends. It's the same old story as George Gould Strong. Not in 20 years did we get along. Though I do feel bad for the way he died in a two-bit flea bag of suicide. It was mother's money, the Bouviers, and if mother spent it in crazy ways, no one else took care of her, only me. She was taken care of, not sexually. And if you infer that they were using her, I will shove you out of the goddamn bed. I don't mind the frenetic mad hattery on display during Around the World, much as I don't mind the arguments within Jerry Likes My Corn, but I like tucking in with this show's quieter moments more than its bouts of hysteria. I mean, come on, who hasn't receded into a blue corner of their inner self, turning over old memories while staring glumly at trinkets? Who hasn't been reduced to the sorry state of a child in the face of their parents' disapproval or indifference? This song stimulated the depressive glance in my brain, and I was grateful for it. By the way, if your answer to my earlier questions was no, well, aren't you a well-adjusted little tomcat meow meow? One little leaf adrift in the breeze refuses to fall from the sky blown by the wind it clings to the tree Blossom, I buzz like a bee, then glance in the mirror, and who do I see? A middle aged woman in her me because it's winter in a summertime. 
Personal Highlights from Another Winter in a Summer Town, which is one of my favorite songs from this show. Personal highlights include the sheer amount of melancholy, the sad watercolor landscapes Little Edie paints, each one bathed in a sunset, the Michael Corey lyric, but I'm still a girl cavorting in my carnival crown, Big Edie and Little Edie vocalizing in harmony. It's not clean, but it is beautiful. It's meant to not be clean, and it is beautiful is what I mean to say. And finally, a big river harmonica coming totally out of left field? Sure, why not? Which soup would you like, mother darling? The tomato with the bisque. Would you like the bisque? You choose. appreciate how Wright, Corey, and Frankel chose to end Grey Gardens not with some didactic summation, a sort of Sweeney Todd finale where everyone reappears on stage to assert what should be taken from the show, but with a simple, seemingly innocuous moment. Little Edie offers her mother two soup options and Big Edie responds by saying, you choose. There's so much in that response worth unpacking. Big Edie is trying, albeit in the smallest of ways, to show her daughter that she does trust her judgment, and Mary Louise Wilson's delivery of that two-word line, you choose, betrays the character's embarrassment. Big Edie knows she's been a handful throughout most of her life, that she has tested her daughter's patience and boundaries time and time again. If she could, she would probably go back and do it all over again, pushing her daughter out of the nest while serving as her biggest champion. But she can't do that. Obviously, it's too late. And so it comes down to soup. I don't know. I really do think I get these characters. I don't know how many times I've tried to make up for my general selfishness and pig-headedness by seeding the slightest, slimmest, thinnest slice of control. It's difficult to even do that much sometimes. I, I'm on your wavelength, Big Edie. Will I wind up like these women? No. I can't. I won't. We must learn from these women. We must take big lessons from them. Don't pitch a tent in the past. Keep moving. Take care of each other. Be nice. Also, like, clean up every week. Every week, we should be cleaning our houses, our apartments, every week. No exceptions. That is our deconstruction of the Grey Garden score. Oh, thank you, thank you. And now we're going to hear from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. Hey, it's me, Superman, from It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. I am currently not on Earth, just to give you a bit of context as to what I'm all about these days. I'm not on Earth. I'm on Mars. I'm hanging out on Mars, and I'm recording this little message into a little uh, little robot, a little robot that I uh, have with me here. And that little robot, as I understand it, not a big science guy myself, but I understand that the little robot... Uh, hi there, little fella. Beep boop. Uh, the robot that I'm talking into is going to send this message back to Earth, which is where you will hear it. Hopefully it doesn't take too, too long to get back to you. It won't matter. For me, I'm going to live for thousands of years. You're going to be dead. And that's fine. Because, that, I mean, 
if I'm going to be totally honest here, that's why I'm on Mars. I am <laughs> so sick of Earth and you humans, your petty grievances, your squabbles, you're like turkeys to me. And I hope that one day you destroy yourselves. Maybe then one day I'll come back and I can have some peace and goddamn quiet. But for now, I will hang out here on Mars, which is red, very much like my home planet, Krypton. Now, do I miss anything about Earth? Not really. Uh, the people, especially. I don't miss you. Did I make that clear? I hope that you all destroy yourselves in a horrible war. Isn't <laughs> that right, little robot? Beep boop. Uh, I will say this. Humanity got one thing right. And it's the coffee. Not all coffee. Most of the coffee is garbage. Five, six, seven, eight coffee, though. That's what I miss. I should have packed a bag. Oh, but I don't really need food or drink because I am powered by the sun. Of course, of course, we all know this. I don't need your fucking food and I don't need your fucking shitty ass coffee. But I did enjoy the flavor of five, six, seven, eight coffee. Ooh, it was so rich and it was so oh, it was so smooth and silky. That's that's the word I'm trying to find. Silky. And you know what? I've been told that it would be helpful if I included this this science fact. It just says vitamins. The copy reads vitamins. Apparently, the copy has vitamins. <laughs> vitamins and banana. Whatever. Babbly, babbly, ba, ba, ba. That's all I hear from you goddamn humans. When I hear you talk, when I read your words, that's all I hear. Vitamins, vitamins, ba, ba, ba. All right, so I'm gonna rec I'm gonna finish this recording. I'm gonna hit stop on this recording here. I'm gonna make the robot send this message to you. It's the last thing I promised to do to a human for a human, I should say. After this point, you will never hear from me again. So, if you are in some sort of terrible situation, I don't care. Is there anything more to say? No. I miss that coffee though. Five, six, seven, eight coffee. You can count on it. All right, little robot. Let's just see. Uh, okay, all right, little robot, come back. Hey, little robot, where are you going? Oh, little robot. Oh, it's digging up dirt or something. It does that so much. Oh, little robot, how you love dirt. I hate humanity. Final thoughts regarding Grey Gardens. Grey Gardens is quite good. Moody, funny, strange. The writing is damn near top-notch. And the performances? Forget about it. I didn't get into this during my deconstruction of the score, but Act 2 seemingly has no idea what to do with anyone who isn't Big or Little Edie. They wind up playing cats, for crying out loud, but this is a small ding on the show, not a big one. And for the record, I understand why a lot of people wouldn't necessarily be on board with characters like Big and Little Edie. They are victims of the patriarchy, true, there's no doubt about that, but they're also entitled and obnoxious. These qualities or why I like them so much, but tastes differ and I accept that. You know why I like them? Because they're contradictory when it comes to what they actually value and want and what they claim to value and want. All of that shit is constantly up for grabs depending on when you catch them. That's a big mood, as the kids say, and I can get on that mood's groovy sad sack wavelength. Now in 2007, the musical that took home the Tony Award for Best Musical was none other than Spring Awakening and the other nominees that year were Curtains and Mary Poppins. So the question becomes, should Grey Gardens have won the Tony Award for Best Musical? And I say, sure. Not a big fan of Spring Awakening. I find it to be boring, like a smelly bottle of sad milk. No thanks. 
<laughs> there's sad, and then there's sad, sad, affected sad, brand sad, corporate sad. Spring Awakening feels like brand name corporate sad. Great Gardens has a more of an authentic indie feel to it. I know it's an enormous Broadway production, but for my money, my money, I'm always talking about my money. If you want my money, you go back in time scientists, and you give the Tony medallion to Great Gardens over Spring Awakening. Come at me with your pitchforks, Spring Awakening fans. Uh, honestly, I do like to hear dissenting opinions if they are written in a respectful manner. So email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com to disagree, agree with me on my Grey Gardens hot takes this week. <laughs> now let's rank the show, shall we? Yes, yes. Before we announce where Grey Gardens falls in our current list, our ranking, I I do want to announce a couple of changes. Ain't Misbehavin' has moved from the number 12 spot to the number 10 spot, and South Pacific, which was uh, previously at number 23, has fallen all the way down to number 30 on our list. Yes, and you want to know why? I didn't really take notes on this because I just I gave myself permission to rant about it for a little bit. Whenever I review the ranking and I ask myself, oh, should we make any changes? Should we move some shows around, I always get to South Pacific and I think, oh, I don't really like that show and it's so high, but it's a, it's a good show, right? Despite my misgivings, despite the utter boredom I experienced while listening to it. Uh, and then I, I just realized, hey, this is the musical, man. This is supposed to reflect my perspective, right? So get the fuck out of here, South Pacific. You're in the bottom. You're in the fucking bottom trenches with the dregs. You're just above Avenue Q and Miss Saigon right now because it's not, that, it's not that great. It's not that great. I know it's in the canon. It changed the landscape and what it meant to be a Broadway musical. It was an enormous part of the zeitgeist for decades and decades. It still is. I get that. I accept that. But it's not part of my personal canon. Not part of my personal zeitgeist. It's boring. It's racist. It's really racist in, in like a old-fashioned, real racist sort of way. Like, there's no irony to it. There's no commentary like in Great Gardens. You know, Great Gardens is trying to make a point by having its characters demonstrate racist tendencies and attitudes and ideas. South Pacific is just like entrenched in the actual time period. It thinks it's doing a good thing, and I don't think it's really doing anything all that well. And there's like a billion fucking reprises, boring romance songs to the fucking gills. Stuffed to the fucking gills, I should say. So fuck you, South Pacific. You're all the way at the bottom now. Now, where is Great Gardens? That's a question we have to answer. So Great Gardens, I'm going to put you at number 11. That puts you between Ain't Misbehaving at number 10 and the producers at number 12. That's right. How about we talk about some show-related ephemera? The first clip we're going to play is from Season 3, Episode 9 of the Gilmore Girls series. Not The Gilmore Girls. The show was known as Gilmore Girls. This is not a Boss Baby, The Boss Baby scenario. Uh, That episode is known as a deep-fried Korean Thanksgiving, and this clip involves Rory and Lorelai watching Grey Gardens while eating snacks in their living room. Hit it, Benny! these women. I love these women. Don't do it, Edie. I'll get so mad. 
poor Edie. Which Edie? Little Edie. She's just trying to sing and her mom won't stop talking. <laughs> Big Edie was so beautiful in her day. They were both pretty. I can't believe they were related to Jackie. Well, the Kennedys kind of hid them in the background for many years. Well, when you're a Kennedy, how do you even choose who in the family to hide? It's a tough choice. Something beautiful about them, though. They're cool, they're free. Yeah, and they're memorable. Most people are very forgettable, and they're happy. They had their cats. And their raccoons. And their pretty house. And each other. Add a few years and they're us. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking of Big and Little Edie as cool and free and happy seems like a pretty wild misread of the Grey Gardens documentary, doesn't it? Oh, those women are so cool and hip and free and happy. They have their cats. What the hell are you talking about, Rory? Lorelai? Rory and Lorelai were such... Posers. They don't get anything. They're Skrulls. They're from the Skrull planet, and I have never trusted them. Our second bit of show-related ephemera this week is a clip known as Then and Now, Grey Gardens. I have no clue what the hell this is supposed to be from, really, though I assume it's an HGTV or HGTV-adjacent program known as Then and Now, and I guess it's about uh, famous houses? I can't determine its origins via the internet, and that creeps me the fuck out. In this clip that you're about to hear, a sassy dandy of a man interviews Sally Quinn, who, as you might recall, bought Grey Gardens along with her husband and had it restored. I'm not going to play any of Sally's statements for you because she has a bad case of milk mouth, she's in desperate need of a glass of water, you don't want to hear that, trust me. Instead, let's hear the host of this mysterious program insist that Wicker... Wicker should be in every room of your home. Sally Quinn has done an awesome job in capturing the Beale aesthetic and spirit in this room. For instance, these wicker chairs, this one with a gothic top, and this one with balls and an inverted top. Don't be afraid to use wicker in any room in the house. And here, books play an important design element. They're not just reference. They dominate the entire major wall of the living room. Chaise loungers are not just the domain of the bedroom. Use unexpected furniture in unexpected locations. Here, these two chaise lounges, originally owned by the Beals, are on either side of the principal fireplace. Who wouldn't want to recline in front of the fireplace in your living room? Who wouldn't want to recline in front of the fireplace in your living room? Dude is in love with those antique chaise longeuses, as he pronounces it. <laughs> chaise longeuses. Can I play this dude in a sketch? Our phone lines are open. Video sketch opportunities. I do not audition. How dare you ask me that question? Normally, this would be the point in the show where we take a ride on the musical carousel to determine what show we discuss next. But we had another listener write up a five-star Miss Saigon, more like Blast Saigon review via Apple Podcasts. And by doing so, they earned the right to dictate what show we talk about. That show, which won the Tony Award for Best Musical in 2012 and ran for 1,168 performances, is none other 
rather than once. Thank you, Matt, for your review and support. I will be taking next week off, I will say, so that episode on once will be dropping on Wednesday, October 16th. Why am I taking the week off? Well, to celebrate Chris and I's fifth anniversary, I do say. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. Listeners can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. Those who donate one dollar a month will receive weekly verbal shoutouts. Let's do that now. Thank you for donating. Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. One dollar a month patrons also have access to special episodes dedicated to the 73rd annual Tony Awards and the first trailer for the forthcoming film adaptation of Cats. Those who donate three dollars a month will get everything I've mentioned, plus a special musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of their choosing. If you donate five dollars a month, you get everything I've mentioned, the ability to stop the musical carousel and tell me what show to discuss on the podcast, plus access to the first season of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera. And finally, if you donate $10 a month, you not only get everything I've already mentioned, you also get access to The Snub Club, a monthly series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Our next Snub Club episode, scheduled to drop Wednesday, October 30th, will be dedicated to Jason Robert Brown's The Bridges of Madison County. Past subjects include It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, Amelie, Merrily We Roll Along, Flahooli, American Psycho, Be More Chill, Jekyll and Hyde, and Allegiance. Donations go toward the purchase of cast recordings, movie rentals, and offsetting the cost of being hosted through Podbean. If we ever get to a point where we're bringing in $100 or more in total monthly donations, I will begin production on M3, The Movie Musical Man, a monthly series for which I will watch trilogies of musicals that are tied by a common theme. Go to Apple Podcasts and write up a glowing five-star review, won't you? We have 21 five-star reviews at this point, and once we hit 30, I will record a special episode dedicated to Disney's Descendants trilogy. It's true. Stream the show at musicalmanpod.podbean.com and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod, and again, email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. I would love to read your thoughts and red-hot takes on this show, so don't be shy. Thanks, as always, to Benny in the booth, Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and Zach Little for our fabulous music. Oh, you know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night. Everyone in the world believes they're unique in their own way. Annie James and Hallie Parker are about to discover. This is so freaky. They're both unique in the same way. That's my mom.
my dad, then you and I are like, like sisters. Hallie, we're like twins.